Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Today's podcast is really special because we have a very talented physician and a community leader as our guest, whose passion for translating his years of work in cardiology to meaningful outcomes in communities is just remarkable. We're speaking with Dr. Columbus Batiste, a board-certified interventional cardiologist and assistant clinical professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine. Since 2008, Dr. Batiste has served as chief of cardiology and is the founder of Integrative Cardiovascular Disease Program based at Kaiser Permanente, where he advocates a lifestyle plan to prevent cardiac events for his patients by helping them modify their lifestyle. Over the years, Dr. Batiste has been recognized for his amazing work in the community by multiple organizations. His ability to bring attention to healthcare disparities in the African-American communities and beyond has been cited in many national forums. He is a bright light that will bring change to healthcare, one person and one family at a time. As he says, each one can teach one. We are honored to introduce him to all of you today. Please visit his website to learn more about his nonprofit organization called The Healthy Heart Nation, which we will share with you all in the podcast notes. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Batiste, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful to you. Dean and I are so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you, to learn from you, and for our audience to get to know you and your amazing work. So excited that you're here with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I think by default, from a mathematical standpoint, there's two doctors on the other end and a singular doctor here. So you should call me Columbus and I should call you doctors. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but it's Columbus a pleasure knows. to meet both of you. I appreciate the opportunity. And it's, it's nice to meet. Like we were saying, it's very long overdue for us to connect. Absolutely. We've known about your amazing work uh, at the hospital level, at the community level. And Dean and I, we always say health does not start in the hospital or the clinic. It's in the communities. And I think you're a true representation of that topic. And uh, we'd love to explore your work. Actually, it's a good place to start would be tell us how you got into this field. Like what made you go into interventional cardiology? Your, your why? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, to be honest with you, as a kid growing up, my dad, I was the youngest, or I like to say the pleasant surprise amongst my brothers and sisters there. Uh, my oldest sibling is 16 years older than I am. But growing up, my dad, would all, he just would say, listen, are you going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a business person? You have three, which were you going to do? And so I always gravitated towards medicine. And originally, like every other kid growing up, I didn't quite get to play sports as much as I wanted to, but I wanted to be the Lakers team doctor. That was my team. I wanted to be a Lakers team doctor. Amazing. But when I hit uh, college, I had the opportunity to go for a summer program and I fell in love with cardiology. I fell in love with the heart. It just seemed to make sense. And it connected with me, it resonated with me, and it was a love affair ever since then. And that's what led, that's awesome. led to me going down that pathway. That's amazing. And so right now you're the chief of cardiology department at Kaiser Permanente in Riverside, correct? That's correct. That's correct. And uh, so you're focusing on treating patients who come in with heart disease and with uh, other coronary artery diseases. What other types of interactions do you have with your patients in your clinic? You know, so when I started out, it was really just about 
procedures. So as an interventional cardiologist, I'm, I always kind of divide cardiology into the electricians of the heart, the plumbers of the heart, the general contractors, and the body and fender guys. So we have the heart failure guys or body and fender. We have the electrophysiologists or the electricians of the heart, and the advanced plumbers or myself, the interventional cardiologist who go and open up vessels and things of that nature. And so getting in, my mindset was singular focused, more and more procedures. You know, and that is the way in which you gain your skill. That's the way you gain your credibility is by doing more. Actually, what's ironic is someone who knew me at the very beginning of my career recalled me saying, listen, the way to cardiology is more and more procedures. We have to build this hospital up and expand our reach and things of that nature. And they and my colleagues now chuckle and they're like, that was you? <laughs> because it's been, it's been quite a bit of a, one, a 360 turnaround over the course. But my day includes seeing patients. I still take care of patients. I'm a big believer in, listen, if a tire is blown out, I have to replace that tire. And then I need to kind of teach that person not to drive over the spikes in the future and keep them from doing those things. And so I still practice interventional cardiology, taking care of acute patients when need be and who are in the throes of a heart attack in that moment. But I also have, at a certain point in my career, my personal life intersected with my professional life. And in an instance, I realized after my dad passed, as I saw my dad kind of pass away actually in front of our eyes, all kids descended on the home. Actually, it was meant to be at the same time. And we were there when my dad passed away. It was hugely traumatic for me as an individual. And I was always a pretty stone person, you know, in terms of take care of things. And it, it put cracks in my fissure and within my, my being. And coming out of that, I just really was distraught, kind of saying, well, what's my purpose? You know, it, it, I would only kind of tell them about pills and procedures. And, and I remember kind of at a certain point, just kind of going into this fog and being tearful and being sad and starting to read. And before that, the seeds were being planted. Patients were coming to me. They're asking, hey, doc, what should I eat? What should I do? And I felt grossly inadequate. I remember going to Barnes and Nobles of all places, not to any research and just picking up any doctor's book. And then we're talking about 15 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And just picking up a book and, try, and starting to read. And, and I would say little quips of like, oh, just do good for us seven days. No one, you know, you're not going to love anything every single day of the, the, the week. Just, just be, be moderate, be okay. And so after my dad passed, I remember kind of sitting there and really in this hole. And I stumbled on Cobble Esselstyn's book, you know, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. And I read that book and the chapter that stung me the most, that spring, sprung out at me, is Moderation Kills. Moderation Kills. And I thought to myself, my dad owned a health food store. My dad, by most accounts, people will say it was fairly healthy, that he didn't smoke, he didn't drink, he enjoyed some processed sweets and things of that nature, well, more than some, and, um, and things of that nature. But overall, they'd say he was pretty good. He was encouraged by his doctors to eat more meat. That he needed this for, for improvement. And all I did was feed those flames. And so all, coming out of all of that business, what I realized is the fact that there was another way. And I started diving in, I started reading, and I was convinced. I started looking back at the, at the references and pulling the literature up with that and start researching and listening, following what I could find online. And then I would go in and, and the resources were not as robust as they are right now. And, and I knew this was the way that I needed to go and transform. And, and I was guarded because I didn't want to be seen as a quack. You know, I mean, if we can be truthful out there, 
there's not a lot of African-American cardiologists inside of the United States and specifically where I'm at, and specifically an interventional African-American cardiologist. And I absolutely did not want to be the antithesis of my community as I was just starting out. So I was very guarded very guarded. And I was torn, conflicted with the mm-hmm. burden of my dad, where also my father-in-law passed the same way from a preventable disease. The same exact year, my father-in-law passed away in January, my dad passed away in August. So anyway, I decided, finally said, okay, I'll do it. And as things would have happened, the first three patients that I saw that I made recommendations, all I did was encourage them. That's all I did. I encouraged them that they needed to start down. I didn't have a platform crafted and I gave them one or two books and they did it and their symptoms improved. <laughs> they result, and I just, and it was amazing. And, and so things just took forth, took fire after that and it evolved and went out, spent time with folks like Esselstyn and others and began to really delve in. And I created a program under the support of my medical director, under which the cardiac rehab, under the guise of cardiac rehab, that I began to really teach nutrition aggressively and dedicate an hour of my own time. That then branched out, I brought a dietitian on into the department, teamed up with another colleague for psychologists. We started doing cooking classes too as well, called the cath lab, ironically, cooking alternative <laughs> to health cooking alternative to health. And so that was a (laughs) monthly venture that we do on a regular basis. And then that branched into a kitchen basics and other avenues there and providing lectures to staff and patients. And so that now fulfills my time there. And then professionally, where we have the good fortune of branching out and working with, um, to develop a program with Samsung to develop a virtual cardiac rehab program where we fit individuals with watches and try and support them remotely. And so we've now gathered over nearly 9,000 patients over the past two years um, who've gone through cardiac rehab successfully, many of whom have um, successfully changed their lifestyle as a result. And so that's something I feel very honored to be a part of. That's incredible. It's absolutely amazing. Your journey is one of courage. I mean, we've recognized some of those fears. We lived through some of those fears coming out of the academic institutions, as we've said, and then our mentor is saying that, oh, you're going to prevention and you're looking into that and uh, epidemiology and and research outside of molecular research. Oh, that's career suicide. Um, Well, it appears that that's the direction everybody's taking. We always say, there definitely is important focus that to be had on disease. About 20% of healthcare should be focused on disease. Um, and that that's going to be the case for a long time to come. But 80%, I mean, for the majority of chronic diseases, 80% can be prevented through lifestyle, through intervention. And we, we love this approach, seeing you and what you're doing and so many others. And this is a growing field. It is. Yeah. And I have to say there are uh, very few doctors who are actively seeing patients and implementing the preventive aspects of health as well. And I think it's very rewarding and fulfilling because you're seeing in front of your eyes how the implementation of a lifestyle intervention program changes their disease patterns and how amazing they feel at the end. I think that's probably one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. Yeah. Yes. We know here's one aspect to that too, as well as the fact that I remember having this conversation with Dr. Furman and I brought him to my institution for a talk. And, you know, we were kind of chatting. The big difference is 
when people seek out Dr. Furman or Dr. Esselstyn or Dr. Ornish, they've committed and made up their, in their mind. They've read, they've researched, they're at a point of an impasse of saying, I need to make a distinctive change. What I told them is I said, the difference is, is every single time I see someone inside my office, I'm giving them an elevator pitch. Yeah. I'm trying to hit them quickly to make them decide to go into this area of lifestyle change. And I said, so that's different. It's almost like fishing that, you know, so I'm happy if I get 10, 15% who really grab hold and do it. Because other than that, the 85%, the 90%, I've planted a seed that perhaps they didn't, and someone else like yourself will come along and water it that they see on television, they listen to your podcast, and now it takes hold. I don't need the credit, I just need the results to happen. Uh, and it's that connection when the, it's the impasse. It's a point where there is a change in culture. And they say that a lot of times, depending on the behavior and outcome, it's about 10 to 15%. When they go to you and then they see five, six doctors and they see another doctor that says the same thing. And then they see a TV show or the cumulative effect of all those little spots of behavior change is what will make the change. You know, in the psychosocial theories of how behavior change takes place, the state where they're pre-contemplation, they haven't even thought about it. A great majority of the population, a great majority is in the pre-contemplation. And what you do and what we do is push a significant number past that pre-contemplation if there's enough of us out there. Because if we wait for people to come to us, for example, we're doing this study in, in beach cities, the, actually the largest study in the country on uh, lifestyle and cognition, but this is beach cities. Yes. Everybody is so knowledgeable that oh they come goodness. in with the pamphlets on the molecular basis of the certain things. The health literacy of this community is, is off the chart. Off you the know? chart. Yeah, yeah. We're used to you know adjusting the talk according to reception and awareness. And most of the time, it's the very basics. But, you know, in certain communities like beach cities, when you go there, they want to talk about, you know, specific molecules that are secreted by yeah. gut bacteria. Yeah. I mean, to that detail. Yeah. And the effect of certain well, foods yeah. on cytochrome P450 <laughs> in the liver. You know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to go look up. I, I have to go look it up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So but the great majority of population, we need to kind of bring the information so people become aware that there's an alternative besides this disease-based approach uh, to their life, which is actually the healthcare system as we have it is a, a disease-based healthcare yes. system, which is, which is fine, which is needed. We just need to shift. And I agree with you. One of my least favorite words, uh, well, my least favorite word of mall, which I think is the most elitist and most destructive word in not just in healthcare, but in, when it comes to public policy, when it comes to all kinds of social reform is motivation. Yeah. When people push, tell people that you just have to be motivated, pull yourself by the bootstraps. They just don't understand social psychology. They don't understand the numbers, the economics, the social, the cumulative social impact over a lifetime that makes behavior happen. And there's a reason why certain populations, certain regions have certain outcomes. It's not because they're intrinsically different. It's because the social forces around them are mathematically causing the outcome. I mean, I sorry, I went a little, but people have to understand, forget about the word motivation. There are small steps towards success. And if we help define those small steps clearly and in a success-oriented way, all behaviors can happen. 
That's yes. as simple as that. And that's so empowering. And, and the second word you brought up, which is moderation. Moderation basically is not that we, we definitely believe in small steps of success. You know, it's not a binary all or none. Correct. But moderation doesn't have clear delineated yes. outcomes. It's yes. an amorphous that lets you just fail back to the press. So yes. I love what you're doing. Cardiology, you know, cardiac disease is the number one killer in America. I mean, by far, as much as we talk about stroke and dementia, still the number one cause of mortality in US is cardiac disease. And we all agree it's preventable yeah. for the great majority. And, and, and there's, a, there's a singular thread that connects all of it. So stroke, and as we all know, we talk about Alzheimer's and so forth, it's all singularly drawn together. And that's what we're seeking to, to really try and, and, and tackle. And that's the whole thing. I mean, you know, you brought up a great point. I, I don't want to springboard into it, but it's so powerful when you speak to the perception as it pertains that people have a choice. We act as if people have a choice and we fail to empathize and put ourselves, which I believe is the greatest ailment inside of the United States is the lack of empathy, putting ourselves inside other individuals' circumstances and see for a moment how they walk. You know, there's a great movie years ago, um, Eddie Murphy, I don't know if you guys have seen it, called Trading Places. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so for those out there who haven't seen Trading Places, so these two rich guys, they decide to make a bet over if they can take a high-powered executive and make him a bum and make a bum a high-powered executive. And they create life circumstances in such a way that this high-powered exec, Dan Aykroyd, goes south. He goes and he yes. goes to this worst version of himself, and they uplift an, the, the downtrodden indigent Eddie Murphy, and he becomes this high-powered exec. And the yeah. bet was over a dollar that they destroyed someone's life, and it's proving the concept in a humorous fashion that our mm -hmm. circumstances really can predict our outcome in a lot of instances. It does yeah. not have to be the sole determinant, but it can. And so this issue of choice, when folks live in communities where there's a lack of access, when folks live in a community where their dollar goes further by eating foods that have been perhaps subsidized or to some degree that are less healthful for them, despite what the government and everyone says, and they're inclined to it. They live in a community where the advertisement targets, and it's specifically there that they see that we see black and brown individuals are targeted more with advertisement for sugary, fast foods, animal products on a regular basis. And we say, yet, you should have a choice. They live in situations and circumstances where their communities have been redlined and there's a lack of walking areas and there's a lack of, of grocery stores, right? It's creating food deserts and this overabundance of highly processed foods and foods, uh, food swamps that are there. And we say, make a choice. Make a choice. We live in, we, we tell these individuals who maybe can't afford air conditioning and they can't afford to go to Disney World or Magic Mountain. And so they take their kids for birthdays at a place that has a playground that happens to be a fast food establishment. Yes. And we say, make a better choice. Mm. How can you make a better choice when all that surrounds you are things that lead you down a pathway that provide your death and demise? Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah. It's, it's, there's so, so much. And, and on top of that, you add the, the element of future seeking or people connecting their present to the future. And that's hope. Yes. Uh, that's hope operationalized. I, I love operationalizing soft terms that I'm not, whenever I do that, people say, oh, you take the poetry. No, no, this is more poetic. It's like saying, <laughs> because I learned how the leaf works, 
and how it actually converts water and carbon dioxide to sugar. That took the poetry out. To me, that's much more beautiful yes. poetry. I mean, understanding things is poetry. Yes. Um, to connect the future to the present is critical and to not let the past be an anchor. Look at those two forces. So connecting the future to the present means you have to believe in the possibility of the future. You have to have enough models of the future happening if people took X, Y, and Z around you, people around you. Having enough steps, clear steps, of leading people to that future, at least one or two of those. And if you don't have that, and if you don't have that, to, to ask people say, oh, why aren't you just look? If you just take you know so many steps, you can become that. I don't see that. I don't see that happening. On top of that, the, the drain or the anchor of the past, the depression, the family broke down, the environmental situation, the lack of food, the poor water and you know all these chemicals in it. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So between the anchor and lack of a pull forward, which is these are mechanical neuropsychological phenomenon. There's no need for us to be operating behavioral science and public health with the 18th, 17th century uh, thought processes. I get a little, I should calm down because they say that no matter how <laughs> intentional it is, you, you push away the oh, audience. I love your passion. No, it's so critical that people understand this is mechanical. Yes. It's literally mechanical. And if we understand that and take away the judgment, take away the false leaps, oh, you just have to X, Y, and Z and it's gonna happen. Yeah. No. There's a reason why certain communities have greater success to the outcome, and we know exactly what those mechanisms are. In fact, you know who knows that better? The marketing people. Yeah, absolutely. The whole, they tell us that if they, even something as simple as this, if they put something in front of you on the internet three times, and then they wait, in a certain time of day, they know your weakness, and they hit you the fourth time, it's guaranteed more than 90% of the time for a majority population that they will buy that product. Now, what happened to free will? Exactly. And if they know that, that's why we went from three states being obese in 1990 to all states being obese and three states being morbidly obese in the United States because those food marketing companies know that none of you have freedom. Yes. It's designed. Let's stop. It's designed. And now let's redesign with an intelligent, non-judgmental way where we can work together, people as brilliant as yourself who see patients and are in the community and many others and redesign the environment to make it better instead of hiding from words. So Dean, what, what I'm hearing you say is that none of us really have a choice. That if these marketers, in a sense, right, that they're playing with us and what they're doing is they're shifting nutrition for profit and for power is what they're doing. They are now taking nutrition, food that was meant for our good, and it's leading us to harm. Now, they may not call it addictive. They may call it that it has this bliss factor, that it has the ability to draw us back for more and more with it. But essentially, they're tapping into this primordial type of process in our brain that drives us towards this pleasure-seeking behavior. Now, that's an incredibly controversial topic, mm -hmm. the concept of choice. I'm a neurobehaviorist. I went into this field as far as, literally because of two concepts, consciousness and choice. And people don't wanna hear what I think of either one of those. <laughs> yeah. Reality is, the marketing people have showed us what where the choice element is. And just because it's not 100%, it doesn't mean that it's not close to 100%. It's, uh, they don't have to be 100%. They just have to be 70%, 80%. And you know what? 
they're that successful. That's why we have billion dollar companies selling sugar, billion dollar companies selling fatty products because they know, first of all, the addictive power of those foods, which are people think, oh, why would evolution have created this need for, because evolution didn't care if you lived past 30. All it cared is you brought the you know, child and then you died. But, <laughs> but, but, but we want to live longer, so we have to do something counter-evolutionary, yeah. which is fight the urge for the urgency food, the survival food, which is the fat and the sugar. But the marketing people know your natural drives, your dopamine is in that direction. And if I put enough things that pull you, oh, by the way, there are segments. They know what the teenagers what are yes. the uh, what are the pressure points with teenagers? They know what are the pressure points for twenties in this demographic and thirty year olds. I saw a commercial and we're not going to name it because we'll be sued. Like, <laughs> oh, um, it, it was a soft drink thing. Um, you be you. Yes. Don't worry about what people say. Oh. I mean, what what that says is don't worry about the health things they're selling you. Just enjoy yourself yeah. and take this thing. It doesn't matter if it has sugar. Oh, 16 teaspoons of sugar in one cup. So bottle. frustrating. It's a new version of the old adage, live, drink, and, or be merry for tomorrow we die. It does just, just, hey, do you. Do you yes, in the right. moment and don't worry about tomorrow is really exactly. essentially what it's saying. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing because then that, that means that these disparities of population, the disparities of population are not so much, well, part of it is socioeconomic, but it's part of it is the environmental factors that have led to these disparities Yes. They're going to be even more susceptible. So we're actually creating a situation that those that are most susceptible are going to dive in further and become more unhealthy. And we're going to dive into something you are very passionate about, both of us as well, is that why in the African-American, my thesis, PhD thesis about African-American, Hispanic, and, um, and Native American, um, although we didn't get many Native Americans into the study, but why there's such disparities mm -hmm. And that those disparities are going to be becoming more and more pronounced, much more. Where where we work at Loma Linda, I'm going to generalize the uh, the Seventh Day Adventists live 12 years longer and healthier on the average. Well, it's eight to some than certain other populations five miles away. 12 years, yeah. and it's because those underpinning social and economical and and environmental factors that have led to that are now becoming more subject, they're becoming more more focused on by these marketing companies. Yes. And then yes. on top of that, the availability. You know, public health is access, access, access. Access to good food, nope, it's all food deserts in those regions. Mm -hmm. Access to information, nope, it's all false advertising. And access to resources such as physicians, nope. First of all, the African-American and Hispanic communities, that's not the best place to dispense information. It's the churches, it's the community centers and all that. Sorry, right, I'm right. going to let go no, into... And, and we know that Columbus is very passionate about this yes. subject and you've worked a lot about it. So we would love to know your experiences and what you've, uh, you've seen. Well, you know, I'll tell you, in all honesty, just listening to both of you, I'm so encouraged by your passion. This, I knew glimpses of your background and I did read your book and, and so forth there and, and loved it, by the way. Thank you. But really from the standpoint of your knowledge base of these disparities and your involvement, even in the academic realm and then now as far as passion, that's just so encouraging. It's so encouraging. You know, for me, I'm ashamed to say is that I was unaware of part, part of my medical training. It was not really brought out. 
in terms of to the degree of health disparities comparably to lack of nutritional education. It, it wasn't. It was just an afterthought, a statement that we die sicker and sooner than other individuals, right? It, it, that was just conceptually that was there. You would see a little uh, subtle things in terms of, well, you're probably better off for this type of diuretic and, and calcium channel blocker for your blood pressure. And, and that was about the sum total of the discussion regarding things. And, and so as time went by, I realized, once again, my awareness, my eyes opening, no, there's huge stark health disparities. We're more likely to have high blood pressure. And it's the crazy part is that it's not just African-Americans, but when you look to what first, it's like, well, this is genetic. This is who we are. Maybe it's a salt sensitivity gene. Well, well, no, it's not. If you look at West Africans, they have a lower incidence of high blood pressure than the general public here, Caucasians. As you move from West Africa all the way through the Caribbean, all the way over, the blood pressure rises here. There's a unique factor as you move towards North America. We have the increased risk of stroke, fatal strokes, of heart attacks, of dying from it, of diabetes. Across the board, it seems like we're leaders in the wrong way people of black and brown. And so that was quite troubling to me when I, we looked at this and it's just like, well, why are we dying sicker and sooner? Why are we dying sicker and sooner? And so we kind of delve into an area that you all know well and you looked at research with is we say, okay, well, yeah, there's a relationship with stress. There's a relationship with stress. We know everyone is, has a, is burdened down with stress and stress seems to be ever present for all of us. We know stress equates to disease. The higher your stress levels, we know it's predictive of events that happen that's there. But one thing that came out is that there is a unique stressor that none of us can run from when you're black and brown. It doesn't matter if I'm chief of cardiology. It doesn't matter if I'm a director of this, if I'm a star athlete. It doesn't matter if you're Oprah Winfrey. Right. We all recall her journey back and looking at a person not able to they did not want to service her, despite the fact she's a billionaire. And so you can't run from this thing called our skin. We can't run from it. And so you have a unique stressor in in discrimination, racial discrimination that can happen. And that those terms have really played out in 2020 grossly. The health disparity aspect and the racial discrimination have played out, have mapped out for something we've been speaking on for the past several years, plain as day. And what we're seeing is we can't run from it. And we know that the higher your stress from discrimination, the more larger your burden of disease. Now, here's the thing. I may not, I may say, well, I've arrived. You know, I'm, I'm a doc like you and my, my income is here and my education is here. I'm somehow, in, it's imper- I'm impervious to those things. Well, the microaggressions hit. Whether or not I, it's small amounts that people assume that I'm supposed to be taking out the trash instead of caring for them. It's the small aggressions where people may assume I'm, there's no offense to anyone taking out trash or to being a therapist, but the assumption is this is where my station in life should be. Yeah. The assumption is that you couldn't possibly have this title or this position. This assumption is you may not be as educated. Or even on the converse, you're awfully well-spoken. <laughs> makes a statement assuming that I should not be, right? right. And so these are micro, these are everyday discrimination. David Williams out of Harvard did excellent research around this. Amani Allen out of Berkeley has done phenomenal research looking at these everyday microaggressions in the impact on cardiovascular health 
in shortening our telomeres. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The impact as far as in carotid artery placking of early onset of breast cancer, as well as progression towards memory impairment, all these things that play a substantial role in the demise that we look here and we see that stress is a killer and we say stress is our demands minus our resources and we figure, okay, well, there's a, is there a lack? We have a heightened sense of a demands as a result, but our resources, here's the key, and we love saying this, is that resources go where value is placed. Yeah. Resources go where value is placed. And many times communities of black and brown individuals have not been valued and resources have not been placed there. Creating, as we spoke about already, this dynamic, this crucible that's there. That now, now we're burdened not only with the issues of the stress and discrimination, but now we're, we're put inside places of living. These pseudo cages where some people in some areas have not been able to, to move beyond. And we see these huge disparities that your, that your zip code determines your longevity. Exactly. It could be as much yeah. as 20 years difference. You know, what's interesting is that Ferguson, where Mike Brown was killed and so forth years ago and kind of started the whole, or reignited, I should say, the whole discussion regarding violence and so forth, it has a huge health disparity. The zip code difference in Missouri and Ferguson is huge. Yeah. And you look at the food deserts and the accommodations that are there, and that when we speak to the issues of life and life mattering, we speak to Food justice is, is as equally important as social justice, the environment that one lives in. And so that's some of the things that, that I've seen play out. And so we developed this uh, colleague of mine, and Eric Walsh. He has his doctorate in public health. He is an urgentologist. He does urgent care and director of urgent <laughs> care back east too as well. But we knew each other from college. And so we teamed together to really kind of develop this project called Slave Food. Mm-hmm. And so slave food, it, it, has a, it has a title that kind of hits you in the face and makes you stop, you know, because it's like, well, wait a minute, what is this? Are we going back to talking about things that have gone by years and years in the past? And, and I like to say it's more of a double entendre. It doesn't really mean that in terms of the food that slaves were given, but it speaks to something we were chatting about earlier, the lack of choice, mm-hmm. that all of us to some degree, we live, we're chained, we're burdened not only to disease, we're chained and burdened towards the manipulation of nutrition for profit and for power Mm -hmm. that targets certain communities through advertisement, through federal subsidizing. And so we walk folks through in this evolution of how this stress also then leads to nutritional stress, Mm -hmm. which is just not solely just the idea of disease forming foods, but it's also the absence of health promoting foods. Agreed. Nutritional yeah. stress is also the absence. So, oh, so many times we speak to, oh, I don't eat this. I don't do that. I don't do the others. Well, what do you do for your health? What, do, what are you eating for your health as opposed to, I'm not eating this? Well, let's change the script and focus from a mindset to build resiliency and really discuss how we can approach things. And so, we walk folks through that journey of this nutritional stress and the evolution of, of that burden, specifically in this targeted group, African-Americans. And I'll take a little sideline note is that I believe this message, all of our messaging about wellness and nutrition is important. I kind of analogize it as you can see, my wife loves movies. So I, I, we watch plenty of movies, right? And so my kids Likewise. love superhero movies. I do Same too here. as well. Oh, we did. Yes, yeah. Yes. And so you think about it, right? There's Superman, there's Batman, you have Spider-Man, you have all these different superheroes. Well, we know the theme is the same. 
There's a good guy. There's a bad guy. There may be a love interest. There's going to be a con- conflict. And generally, the, the good guy wins in the end unless there's a sequel, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that's the same thing. The central core is that it's disease versus lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Lifestyle can win, but we can frame the message in different areas, different yes. target groups. And Absolutely. so- That's what slave food is about. Slave food is about targeting specifically intentionally a group that has the highest burden of disparities in the United States. And here's the here's the thing, you know, and we we alluded to this before kind of in discussion that this is not really a black thing. It's not a brown thing. This is an American thing. When we look at the fact that as a result of health disparities, right? that there's huge losses, billions of dollars. I think it's somewhere around $35 billion in excess healthcare expenditures, right? $10 plus billion as far as in lost productivity. Those are huge numbers. And we talk, we speak to premature deaths of excess of over $200 billion. That right there is a reason why this is an American crisis. It's not, a, it's not an African-American thing. This is something that impacts all of us across the board. Oh, absolutely. I think you just hit it. If people realize that this is not a culture war. No. This is actually raising all boats. Yes. This is about increasing the denominator, increasing, uh, because we know that in public health and in social sciences in general and public policy, if one element of society is suffering, it just doesn't, maintain in that region. It affects everybody directly or indirectly because we are a connected society. And more importantly, by focusing on the elements that are having the, you know, the disparity and the difficulty, you're actually identifying problems for yourself as well. Health is an interconnected knowledge base by doing so. So people have to realize by addressing the disparities, you're not doing anybody any favor. You're actually doing yourself favor. This is how science works. This is how public policy works. What the politicians have done, which is what politicians will do all the time, is divide and conquer. Yes. There is no need for division. It's about understanding. It's, it's as if you're saying that you're a human body and all of a sudden you're going to ignore the arm. Right. If there's a problem in the arm, it's going to affect the rest of your body. Absolutely. And ironically, how a nation works, how economics work, is actually much more integrated than even how the human physiology works. And if that you don't believe that, look at what, what's going on with economics right now. If one part of society is disproportionately affected, others will be affected. It doesn't matter if you don't see it in two weeks, which is the timeline of TV television, but you will see it over time. But if we raise everybody, now you said United States, actually it's global. I know that I, right. I use, as soon as I say word global, all these anti-globalists, <laughs> uh, they, they start, you know. It's about the fact that and then from 1990 to 2010, global poverty was reduced by half. Never in history was that done. And it was mostly done, well, that's questionable, but by what we did it from as far as public policy or international policy from US side and, and Europe and everybody else and raised the world middle class. Well, oh, what a great thing we did. Well, no, we also created markets for ourselves. In fact, the most exports that we've ever done was because of those markets we created. It's, it's a rising tide. The same thing here, but it's actually even more so. If we help certain communities, be it Hispanic, Native American, African American, or 
you know, in Appalachia. I've been to West Virginia. I've been, <laughs> I grew up in Pittsburgh. It's also socioeconomic. If we help, uh, of course, some communities because of historical elements have much more weight pulling them. If we help all these communities rise, we create a greater economic base, we create a greater knowledge base, and most importantly, we create a greater vitality base. Yes. That's, that's what we're working for together. It's the default divisions, culture divisions, culture wars, that's actually pulling us down. So what you do to us, and what we do as well, and, but, but we love what you do, is highlighting the concept that actually affects all of us with a very, very engaging term, slave food. But as you said it beautifully, it's not just about that sensational concept, which needs to be addressed, but how it affects all of us, yes. how we are all in many ways, we talked about this free will and, and how, the choices we have. If we had choices, why is the country becoming less and less and less and less healthy? And yet we all know that we should be healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, there's a great article and, and I don't want to assume that I can quote it verbatim in terms of all the details, but moral determinants of health, the moral determinants of health. It's not just an issue about, okay, recognizing that there are issues of that pertain to social determinants of health, the environment, the jobs, the food access, food deserts, things of that nature, but really what, how are we implementing change to occur? What are mm -hmm. we doing that we say one thing in terms of our words, like the government says, hey, we should have more fruits and vegetables. Yes, we should minimize this, but yet our actions, we subsidize foods that lead to our detriment. And individuals who eat those government subsidized foods are more likely to have metabolic consequences as a result of it, studies have shown. And so we have to be, we have to, to there needs to be more synergy in our words and our, in between our words and our action and yeah. be very distinctive. And there has to have this moral compass that's there, as you said, right? And I would say too as well, that drives people to the humanity, at the humanity level that these, we each and every one of us are human beings and we're only as strong as our weakest uh, yeah. person. You know, that's the key. That's really the and key. I love that. I love that angle. And I think that's what's most needed to shift the conversation and the narrative towards that direction to bring attention to the humanity aspect of health. Yeah. And I think just based on my experiences, our experiences at the clinic and while educating ourselves in terms of public health, we need individuals who can show everyone a bird's eye view of the mechanism of health, of how disease comes about, rather than dealing in the minutia, whether sugar is bad or fat is bad. Obviously, you know, for practical reasons, that is very important. But I think all of us, not necessarily just physicians and healthcare professionals, all of us should be taught and should be educated about the mechanism of and the business and the economy of food. And you do that. And, um, you know, I've, I've uh, had the privilege of listening to some of the conversations about the Slave Fruit Project. And you shed light, you know, from 20,000 feet to show everyone how this works and what are some of the elements that we have to address first and foremost. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of that, we actually touched on it a little bit, which is stress and intrinsic stress, background stress, and how it affects disease and food. And yeah. that's an area that you've 
touched on in the book as well as in your conversation. So I would love to hear what you what you have to say about this this chronic stress and its effect. Because I think, especially now during this COVID nineteen, which has actually shown us some some really interesting things about our our society, I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, no, I mean, we see clearly this relationship between stress and food, and we we see it just in our desires. I always kind of like to joke around and use the old, uh, the uh, the fact that it's a palindrome, that stress is dessert spelled backwards, and we all tend to, in moments afterwards, uh, I'll, I'll joke a lot of times and say, we into the day, we go for a date with Ben and Jerry's, you know, and it's because of the stress that burdens us. We set out in the morning, and we're, we're set on having a phenomenal day that we're going to be a to make changes. We're going to be the best version of ourselves. And slowly, it's eroded throughout the day. And we're more susceptible to these influences that may come through advertisements, commercials, and our desires. And we tend to to move mindlessly in terms of our eating and so forth of what's there. And we go to the quickest thing because we haven't planned out. Mm -hmm. And we look to say, well, okay, how is this food really truly creating stress? We understand that stress is burdensome for the body and what it can impact, how it can impact us. But how is food? Well, the food on a microscopic level, whether or not we're speaking of oxidative stress, whether or not we're speaking, and I, I simplified, and you, you know, we've got, you guys alluded to this and, and to how you tailor the conversation according to your audience. Mm-hmm. And so my assumption is I rather have folks similar to yours force me to break it down more detailed and scientifically but I start off basic. And so when I speak to oxidative stress, I'll oftentimes speak about the fact that, hey, you know what, you're happy, you set out happy and you're well and everything of that sort. And so when I'm inside of a church setting, I'll, I'll say, hey, you're ready to come in and you walk in and all of a sudden, what happens to you if someone looks at you a little funny? If they look at your dress or, or your suit and they, they're giving you an, uh, an appearance that makes you know that they, they're thinking poorly about you. It takes away from your confidence instantly. Yes. Those individuals are like free radicals. They're coming in and they're trying to attack that healthy atom that's there, right? They're attacking that healthy atom. And so, and so when we can have, we can fill that gap with something else. So in the church, I'll speak to spiritual aspects to help fill that gap, to keep it impervious, and to shield from that. Inside other communities, I'll, t- I'll speak to really when we arm ourselves with the rich foods, the antioxidants, they act and they, they donate themselves. They sacrifice themselves on your behalf to keep yourself healthy. And so we yeah. have to load ourselves with things that will enrich our bodies in terms of antioxidants to help offset the free radicals. It's a very simplistic approach for describing it. And then we'll talk about the, really the impact of the way many of us love to eat foods in terms of grilling, high burn marks, and the high heat, and advanced glycated end products. And, and so we'll go through those and how this creates a stressful state in the body. Mm-hmm. This browning effect inside the arteries that can lead to disease that's there and how it impairs this endothelium, this, that magical layer that connects everything from your head to toes and now as well seems to be related to the COVID virus even as well, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'll speak to really that stress on that state, but then we branch out and really get to the heart of things from more of a public health standpoint on this stress in the community with these foods and really how they evolved. And so I love history. 
And I always joke and say in another life, I would have been a history professor, but I love the history. And there's a great book. I'm not sure if you all have read it. We did one segment and we'd love to have you on as well. So being reciprocal, um, yeah. Chen Zhao, sure. doc, uh, Dr. Chen Zhao, rather, who wrote Supersizing Urban America. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she delves in very deeply into really how these communities that became just encumbered with all these fast food restaurants and through Mm -hmm. small business association loans. And you connect the dots between small business association loans, which funded the fast food industry and iced out the grocery stores because of the profit margins. And then you have the government subsidies that come in and make the cost lower for the food and our tax dollars that pay for the advertisement through dairy checkoff system. And there's this vicious cycle Mm -hmm. that seems to be awfully unique inside of the environment there that you create this perfect crucible, this perfect crucible for disease that's there in this stressful state. Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, So one of area of interest for us is stress, good stress, bad stress, and yes. how uh, even, so your body is actually designed to be stressed to capture information. That's the kind of stress that's good. Yes. The other kind of stress is to be prepared for survival. But, you know, the autonomic system and how the limbic hippocampal pituitary system affects your entire body from moment to moment. But that system was supposed to be only used for survival. Well, survival, we've done well. There are no more saber-toothed tigers. In fact, we've taken care of all tigers pretty much. Sadly. <laughs> They're in different but, forms. Yes, yeah. different form. <laughs> now we have these social tigers and yes. social stressors that are constant. And some people have more than others. Those you know, human nature, we're myopic. We kind of focus on that, what's in front of us and what we can handle. So yeah, blueberries, good. Doctor, I don't care about anything else. I just eat blueberries, like you were saying earlier. No, it's gotta be much more than that. Those are easy, but managing stress, or at least the part that you can manage is critical. Because every moment that you actually feel that underlying small quivering of stress, it's actually affecting your system away from parasympathetic towards sympathetic, away from good hormones being released from pituitary to bad hormones, away from a restorative, regenerative state to a more defensive, protective state, which is constant destruction of vessels, your hormone system, your sexual hormones, your immune system being suppressed. And imagine the fact that in one population, and we know the data on that, in one population, those numbers are profoundly different than the other population and nothing to do with genetics. It's background, environmental, social, cultural, historical stressors that constantly push towards the bad hormones. As if you're constantly under threat of that tiger or saber-toothed tiger. Yes. That's going to affect the population differently. That's going to affect your frontal lobe, which is your ability to withstand or hold against the temptation differently. It's an incredible piece of information that we have to address. What you're doing is not just talking about, which is important, as important as anything else, the African-American community, the disparate community, but what you're doing and hopefully what we're doing is, by doing so, addressing it to the entire community Mm -hmm. because every community has different levels of that. We love what you do. We love the, uh, the Slave Food Project that you're undertaking and we consider ourselves part of it and we consider you part of our project. There is a myopic, small-minded mindset in healthcare where people are creating little fiefdoms of, <laughs> of uh, 
nutrition centers or 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 uh, prevention centers and this, it's not about that it's about all of us working to raise the population of those who are aware of healthy living which is from a, f- a couple of million to 300 million and beyond and that's why we need to work together we we're honored to know you and to work with you no, I appreciate it. And then once again, the feeling is so, so mutual. I have all the utmost respect for what you all have done and continue to do as far as in the community. And I think we definitely have to work together to really impact change. We have to do this. And, you know, I use this this equation of health is tied to our resiliency divided by our stress and that we have to build our resiliency. Every Everything we do, whether it's food, our thought process, our activity or inaction is either adding to our resiliency or adding to our stress. The higher our stress, the poorer our health, the higher our resiliency, the better our health. And so yeah. that's really the key to improve our health span over lifespan. You know, we, we understand, all of us do, that in many African-American communities, the thought is, hey, listen, I'm not afraid to die. You know, in many communities, Caucasian, Hispanic, everyone, I'm not afraid to die. Well, it's not about being afraid to die because guess what? We all are going to have to die. Right. But it's about living your best life now, about increasing that health span as much as possible in order to achieve that and arming people with the tools that are attainable. And for some being able to encourage them that small steps right now are good enough. Keeping yes. you moving towards that goal. It doesn't have to be all or none. You know, the yeah. Adventist Health Study out of Loma Linda, they kind of showed that, that, you know, as you begin to move from eating and everything down to more of a plant-rich diet, that the numbers seem to improve across the board of many, many, many chronic and metabolic ailments that are there. And that's really what folks need to hear and be encouraged instead of being discouraged by just the, the mounting, surmounting this heel of saying, you know what, I can't achieve this. This is too great. And they give up in an instance. And it's not about giving up. It's not about giving up. Wonderful. It's all about progress over perfection. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been probably one of our favorite conversations, and I see another one coming very soon in the near future. Columbus, you're amazing. Thank you so much. We're so grateful for everything you're doing for the community, for the world, and we look forward to being connected with you from here on. Oh, thank you all so much. It's feelings, once again, are mutual, and I'd love to have you on. I, w- I want to uh, pin you down in the corner right now and get your commitment that you're going to come on one of our slave food conversations. You know, that's our goal is to, I'll be honest and transparent, you know, um, for a while I was trying to just try and keep some of these other thoughts. And this is separate from my role within the institution. This is part of my community work. This is part of my own nonprofit, Healthy Heart Nation and so forth. It's just to move things forward in a different way. It doesn't take away from what I do academically or from in, in the institution. This is my passion, right? And one of the things that we want to do is we want to get this message out in a visual word, a way, in, yes. in the form of a, a docu-series and so forth is really what our ultimate goal is. And so we've been in discussion and communication with transforming this. Obviously, having a book component of it at, at some point will be obvious because it, it's the goal is to kind of provide a different angle. But here's the key. This story is the same story that can be addressed inside of Native, Native American community, inside right. the Hispanic community, and showing that our DNA is not our destiny. And that's ultimately the goal, is to really just empower people to enact change at a grassroots level. 
that they have to implement the power through their dollars and their choices to either drive out because books like Supersizing Urban America show that right now there's not a unified voice. So what's interesting about Loma Linda, and sorry, we're opening the conversation up again briefly, but they no, fought they felt they fought voraciously to keep a fast food into uh, from coming to their area several years oh, ago. Oh yes, oh yes. Yeah. we were yeah. we were part of the the conversation. Yeah, and you know, whereas other communities did not have that degree of support or power to fight. Yeah, and so these areas come in under the guise of we're providing jobs that are minimum wage and so forth to these communities, but really what they're providing is they're providing areas of further economic demise as disease burden is pushed forward. And as we're having years of life lost and we're having more dialysis centers that have to come up on par with the degree and the nature of the fast food establishment. So all that stuff to say uh, is that, you know, we have to work together. There's, this is bigger than all of us. That's so it's true. going to take more than, than just us. Columbus, you're stuck with us. We're, we're, we, our entire life purpose is to reduce suffering. And it's not about creating a little bit, a small little movement for ourselves. It's, it's much bigger. And it's, to be all honest, in many ways, it's selfish to know that our kids and us, we're actually living this beautiful life where we're making a difference with people, as amazing, lovely people as yourselves and others. It's a joy. We're going to be working together. We're going to make this difference. And uh, this was the first of many, many conversations. Love it. Love it. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Columbus. Thank you.